You know, as you think about their message for uh, their seminary, God uh, with us, and then uh, go with God, that's really the mission of the church, is to recognize that God is alive and well, and he penetrates the lives of those who respond to him. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit this morning as we think about, well, how do you live that out? How do you live in an obedience to Christ, on the mission of Christ, that we might uh, make men and women who follow Christ? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at that this morning as we look at a very familiar passage of Scripture, probably even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. You've heard at least the name of this story. It's the good, what? Good Samaritan story. How many have never heard of that story? Embarrass yourself in church and just raise your hand. All right. Anyway, you know, it, it, you know most of us have heard that. I mean, we even in our political system have good Samaritan laws, Right? And the Good Samaritan laws are for the purpose of protecting people who decide to be Good Samaritans because sometimes when you help people, they don't quite appreciate it as much as you thought they would because uh, maybe they might sue you or whatever it might be, blame you for something you did or didn't do. And, and so we have laws to protect that. Uh, but as we look at this uh, familiar story in the Scripture this morning, and I've entitled the message like we've been kind of focusing as we go through this gospel of truth, um, Luke particularly said, I'm writing these things in in an orderly account so you might know the truth about Jesus, is that sometimes we know where the truth is, but we don't necessarily understand the truth well enough in terms of what God was trying to say through it. And it's quite possible this morning you're going to see the Good Samaritan story in a slightly different light than maybe you've seen it before. But essentially, people, people like to hear about truth. They, go, they want information and they want answers. I was reading some things over the internet this past week. And do you know where the number one source of information and truth is for people in the United States? It's Google. All right, That's the number one source for information, what they believe is true. And the reason I say believe it's true, because they've done some testing. Sometimes they'll ask questions of people in America, and they'll say, uh, who are the most reliable people you know, in uh, our society? And sometimes they'll say it's teachers. Sometimes they'll say it's the uh, the police and other times past, they've said that. And sometimes they'll say it's the military. Sometimes they'll say it's the judicial system. They never say it's the Congress or the, uh, the president. But, you know, they, they'll say that. Sometimes they even, and some decades past, they said at the church was the place where you would find truth. Well, Google is not only the, the source people turn to first, but they feel it's most reliable. However, in our day and age, people begin to examine that, and they realize that Google isn't always what? isn't always right, isn't always correct, and they're now kind of, kind of wading through that. In fact, sometimes, depending on how you ask the question, it'll give two different answers. And, and so as we think about a source of truth, we need to realize that the Bible portrays itself, and I'm convinced it is an accurate portrayal, that this is truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And Jesus said, I am truth personified. And, and so when people had tough questions in life, uh, they would go to Jesus and they would uh, try to discover what he might have to say about things that were important to them in life. And that's what we're going to see today. But the Good Samaritan story is usually isolated from its context. And and whenever you hear someone talk and whenever you hear or read something that is, uh, you know, kind of jumps out of the page at you, whether it's in the scriptures or some other place, you want to make sure what's the surrounding context. Because a text without a context, as some people say, is a pretext. It's, it's, you're assuming certain things to be true. And when you read more carefully, you say, well, that, that wasn't really the point of that story. That wasn't really the point of what that person was saying. 
And you'll see that here. And so what I want to do is read the familiar story, and then I want to put it in the context. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 10, we'll get to the story part of what Jesus said to a man who came up to ask him a question. Beginning at verse 30, we have the story. It's a familiar story. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance... A priest was going down on that road. It's, it's interesting as I'm reading this text. You know, we're, we're actually kind of going through the Gospel of Luke in a, a rather, um, for some people, a slow uh, process. I mean, the, the Gospel of Luke is, a, is, is one of the longer Gospels. You know, it's got 24 chapters in it. It's the longest Gospel, actually. And, and as you look at it, we, however, we could even go slower because there are just things in here you could just preach a sermon on. You know, what does it mean that something happened by chance? I thought God was what? I thought God was sovereign. I thought everything happened by design, decree, and put everything together. But I'm not going to talk about that. But anyway, we'll go on. Okay. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So in case in the reading of this text you're not connecting to the story, here we have someone who's been robbed and beaten and left half naked, and, and then uh, a couple of people pass by, one a priest uh, and one a Levite, basically professional religious people, and uh, they don't stop. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, with him, uh, you spend when I return, I will repay you. Now, Jesus tells that story, and when we read that story, we are all aware of the challenge is, as we look at the, the model of the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, whose example are we to follow? This is not a trick question. We are to be like a what? Samaritan. And we put in that, and when we read the details of the story, I don't know about you, but every time I read this story, I feel very, very, the word I'm looking for is, it begins with the letter G, U, I, L, what? Guilty, right? Do you ever feel guilty reading the Good Samaritan story? Am I the only one who feels guilty reading the Good Samaritan story? Boy, I, who am I talking to? <laughs> I mean, you read that and you go, here's a person in need and, and I got to go help them out. And not only need to help them out, I need to spend all kinds of money on them and then promise to come back. And, and, and there are a lot of people like there at that, those, that person out there. And what, what am I supposed to do, right? Keep nodding your head like you're listening to me, all right? So you're going, oh, my word, what, what, this is a story that I just wish wasn't in here. And I'm thankful it's only one of the four Gospels, which is an interesting little bit of trivia, if there's anything trivia related to the Bible. But this is, this is the one account of this story. Now, is this story put in here only to make us feel guilty about the things we're not doing? Is that, is that really the, the point of the story? And it might be some of the subpoints here. But what's the context of this story? Well, let's, let's, let's move back a little bit. Look at verse 25. And this is right after, at least in the, the rendering of the life of Jesus by Luke, it's right after 
Jesus challenged everyone to be on mission or gave the example of sending out the, the 70 and they came back and he, he gave them very something specific to do is preach the, the, the message of the, the king had come and you better get connected to that king if you're going to have life that it really is going to last forever. And, and, and then a lawyer comes up and a lawyer came and stood up and put him, this is Jesus, to the test saying, teacher. Not Again, if you read through the scripture slowly, and sometimes I read like I speak, I speak a little bit faster than I should, and I sometimes read faster than I do, but it's interesting when you slow down a little bit. Here you have someone uh, who's a lawyer, and maybe he had a higher view of himself than he should have, but here he comes to someone that he recognizes as a teacher. But reading what was really happening here, normally when you are in, in the presence of a teacher, who are you expecting to give the test? You as the student or the pupil or the teacher? The teacher. But he reverses that role, doesn't he? He's not looking for Jesus to put him to the test. He is looking to put Jesus to the test. So we, so we ask him a question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there have been times where I've been in classrooms when either I didn't understand what the teacher was saying or, or I wanted more than what the teacher was speaking about or maybe I was in a bad mood and I was trying to give the teacher a bad time, but whatever it might be. But I would, I would ask professors or teachers questions. And sometimes the questions I would ask weren't that relevant to the, the lecture, whatever, and I got put in my place, whatever it might be, or the question wasn't that important. But would we, could we all agree this is a pretty important question? In fact, if there is such a thing as eternal life, and we're living this life, and we got to decide on this life, or we're going to experience that next life that, that a God that we believe does exist, uh, is offering, I, I want to know the answer to that question, right? So he, here, here was a man who, who was, in some ways, just testing Jesus, but he was asking the right question to the right person. And if you ask the right question to the right person, uh, unlike Google, you can be convinced you're going to get the right what? Answer. And so he asked him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, this is Jesus, said to him, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation of the New Testament, what is written in uh, the law? How does it read to you? And so what does Jesus do? He uses uh, a, a question to answer the question. And part of that he discerned that this wasn't just a question uh, desiring the information. It was really to, to somehow... Uh, mess up Jesus in a public form. Though probably in this situation, it was in a small group. We, we push small groups a lot here, life groups. He had been dealing with the masses. Now it's a smaller group. And so the opportunity to, to look at Jesus face to face and ask the question. And so Jesus responds to him. And we see this. This is, this is just good for all of us. There is ministries where we, we speak to groups of people and smaller groups of people. And then sometimes we're just face-to-face with people. And Jesus is going to have a one-on-one conversation with probably other people listening in. And he says, well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And so he refers to him. He says, okay, don't go to Google, but go to the Old Testament that we believe is authoritative and true. And, and what do you get from that? And then he, the lawyer, answers and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. I'm just looking at, I'm preaching without going back to the notes. Okay, Uh, (laughs) if you like fill in the blank, they probably already have things up there. Uh, What is it really trying to teach us, the, the truth about the Good Samaritan story? It begins with a specific question, all right? So as we think about determining what does the Good Samaritan story start, 
uh, I mean, mean. Let's get the context. And the story begins with a question. And the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, it, and, the, and the message here is, what do I need to do, right? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, that is significant as we think about his understanding of what it takes on our end to get it done, right? Now, he might have been thinking from his perspective, he was probably a, a Jewish lawyer, and aren't all lawyers Jewish? No, that's not true, but, you know, he, he was probably a Jewish lawyer, okay? And he had probably been circumcised, and so he said, look, I think I got the mark of salvation. I am probably... Um, pretty far up the, the ladder to maybe already having it because I'm one of God's chosen people. I, I, I do have a high value of the truth found in Scripture, and I understand it pretty well. And Jesus is going to, in a moment, um, really applaud his answer. But he's focusing on what do I need to do? And, and before we, we, we really come into in the experience of having eternal life, until we realize it's not what we do, but what God does, we're not going to get there. And if you want to look at, there's various places in Scripture that talk about that so plainly. One is found in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, I have in your outline this morning. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, that's a pretty good question as well. Okay, I want to make sure I'm doing what God wants me to do, so what do I need to do? What are the works of God? I want to make sure I'm doing those works of God. And then Jesus answers them, and John, he says to them, this is the work of God. He takes it from plural to singular. This is the work of God that you, what? Believe. So let's make sure that we understand what is the message of the church? What, what is it to be on mission? To be on mission is, is to get the, the main point. The, the main point is we're trying to bring people into the reality. It's not what you do. It's what God does. And if you want to get in on what God does, if you want to do that singular work, you need to believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. And that's where dovetails that most familiar verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, what? Believes. Believes in him. Should not perish but have everlasting life. So he begins with a good question. And then it's followed with a good theological answer. Uh, you know, he, he took the Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the glory of God with all your heart. So. And, and soul, and with all your strength and all your might, and your neighbors yourself. And then he, this is Jesus, says to him, you have answered correctly. Now, we've all been to school, some of us longer than the others. Some of us need more education because we're not quite as smart as the rest of you. But, you know, the longer we go to school, we've, got, we've taken a lot of tests. And the thing you want to do when you get a test back is you don't want a lot of red marks on it, Right? You want happy faces, and you want to know, you want, what you want to see is that your answers to the questions are correct, right? I mean, that's just awesome. I pass. I, I got a good grade. I, I got it right. The only problem is Jesus didn't stop speaking. In fact, in many of your texts, they probably have like a semicolon there. You have answered correctly, and then he says this, do this and you will live. 
Now, now he's kind of muddying the waters here a little bit. Okay? He came to test Jesus, and now Jesus now reversed it and put him to the test. And we need to realize on this point that if, if we really believe, we need to understand it's going to affect our behavior. If we have the right answers to the theological questions, the, the creeds of the church, you know, who is Jesus, who is God, what is sin, what is the cross, all that, it's one thing to have the right creed, but has it changed your conduct? And if you have Christ, has it resulted in a changed behavior? But, but even more than that, I think we need to back up the truck. That wasn't even his main point here. What he was getting back to Jesus, I, I'm convinced that, is that he was saying to him, okay, you asked me a question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I, I, I sent you back to that long book in the you know, as far as the Old Testament, and, okay, give the summary of all that the Old Testament says about what we must do. And what we must do is have a a right relationship, love relationship with God, that we love Him perfectly with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Would anybody here say you've done that all of your life? Okay, check that one off. Oh, 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 by the way, let's look look on the horizontal level. How have you treated the people around you, your neighbor? Would you said you've loved your neighbor like God wants you to love your neighbor all the time and all the people around you? Anybody want to raise your hand on that one? You didn't raise your hand on the easy one, so I'm not sure you're going to raise the hand on this one. But, you know, check, I haven't done that either. Now, what should that lawyer now have done? He put Jesus to the test. Now, Jesus put him to the test. He should have just cried out for God's what? Mercy and forgiveness. <laughs> you got me. I, I, I can't do enough to inherit eternal life. I, I, I just, I can't measure up. He should have cried out for mercy. You know, some people, you know, they, they wrestle because, well, how, how good do you have to be to get to heaven? You've got to be perfectly good. Now, theoretically, if, if any of us could obey the law perfectly, that would be sufficient. But the problem is, or the reality is, none of us can. None of us can. And, and that's what he was trying to tell them. Look at <laughs> You can't measure up to your own theological answers. You, you can't do it. And we're going to be seeing in the future, in Luke chapter 18, if you know, the Lord tarries and doesn't come before we, you know, Luke 18, that the whole story about the rich young ruler. Remember that one? And he said, basically the same thing, well, obey all the law. He says, well, I've done that since I've been a little kid. Now, the problem here, the lawyer, and we're going to see in a moment in the context of the Good Samaritan story, uh, but the problem with the rich young ruler is he was deceived. He thought he had done it. This, this guy really knew he hadn't, but he was looking for a loophole in a moment. Isn't that what lawyers do, look for loopholes in the law and like that? We're going to see that. But the rich young ruler thought, yeah, I've done it. And Jesus said, okay, you really have? Well, let me, just, let me just point out who your God really is, which was money. Take everything you've got and sell it and give it to the poor. Now, did Jesus ever say that to anybody else? No, because that wasn't everybody's God, but it was that man's God. And this man's God probably said, look, I'm a lawyer. I, I, I love the Word of God. I, I'm a circumcised 
Jewish chosen people person, and yeah, I think I've got it already. And whenever we approach God without just crying out for his mercy, seeing we have nothing to offer him in our own goodness, then we've missed it. And the reality is, it's so easy to do that because, um, all right, let me see if I can get anybody to raise their hand on this one. Does anybody know anybody you think is a little bit more messed up than you? Anybody can think of any? <laughs> okay. I mean, there's some people out there who go, well, you know, I don't, you know, that, that person, that, you know, they, if, if there is evil personified, that person is, and I'm, you know, I'm a saint compared to that person, okay? And, and when we do that, that's, that's where we get in trouble, isn't it? And I'm pretty good compared to somebody else, at least somebody else I'm better. And see, that's where the lawyer is at. And that's where most people are at. We, we think that somehow God, God um, should give us eternal life. That somehow we deserve it. And so he hits them hard. He hits them hard practically. And he goes on and he says, uh, he follows up. You know, it begins with a, a specific question. It's followed with a good theological answer, which simply is love God and, and your neighbor. And then, then he comes the impossible challenge by Jesus. And the challenge was this. You have answered correctly, now do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, basically what happened here with the lawyer is he said, look, there's got to be a loophole because I think I'm pretty good with people I, I like. You know, I'm really good with people, you know, not perfect, but I'm really good with people I love. But you're, you're not asking me to, to love everybody, are you? And he somehow thought that he could justify himself by his own performance. Look, the Bible's pretty clear on that. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified... By the works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the word justification, some people in a Sunday school way will, will, will say it's just as if I never sinned. You know, and that's okay. But really it means that you are declared righteous. It's, it's, a, it's a legal pronouncement that you are good enough. And, and so we need to realize that, that no man is justified or good enough by he, the works of the law, which is the idea of being obedient enough to that that standard that God has presented. But how? But through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Why? Because no one can do it. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. You know, there are a lot of things in life that will bring you to that point to, to realize you're not as good as you think you are. You know, uh, if uh, you could take any analogy here. Maybe you think you're a pretty good cook, and then you, then you go to someone, some restaurant or someone else's home, and whatever you thought you were good at, and then you tasted what they made that you make, and you go, I'm not quite as good a cook as I thought I was. Or maybe, maybe it's a certain hobby. Maybe you think you, you, can, you can make things pretty well. I remember making a gazebo in the back of my house for, a, a, for something when we were living in Banning. And I thought it was pretty good until a contractor friend of mine came over. And this is the first thing he said when he saw it. He says, you're, you're not finished with it yet, are you? <laughs> 
and he proceeded to remake the whole thing. It was just it was crushing, you know, it was crushing my heart. It's, you know, I thought I actually had done a pretty good job. You know, I had measured everything as best I could, and I had, you know, and he said, no, it's not going to stand the first win, you know. And, and, you know, I thought it was pretty good, and, and we do that all the time. And, and what that does, when you're in the presence of someone who knows a little bit more than you, do you realize that it's to lead you to something more? And that's true in the temporal level, and it's true in the eternal level. Is When they are in the presence of Jesus, they realize they had to be led to something more, which was desperate dependence and reliance upon him for his grace and mercy. So then Jesus tells the story. And he tells the story, and I want to just simply say this. We heard the story, and the story is about someone who goes to great lengths to help someone in need. And he told me, this is, this, is, this is how you need to see people in need. But let's pick up the story where we left off. Look back to Luke chapter 10, or listen as I read. He asked a question, verse 36, this. Which of these three, the Levite or the priest, the priest was, you know, related to Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, and the Levite was the tribe that was to assist in all the public worship of the, of the true God, uh, who, who knew the, the law, which talked about reaching out to the alien and, your, and the hurting in your communities, and they did not stop. And then you had the Samaritan. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, verse 37, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, I really believe that the Good Samaritan story, as we normally read it, has the point that most of us remember when we hear the story of the Good Samaritan or even make reference to be a Good Samaritan, that we are, we are to look at people through the eyes of God and see them as people that he's created in his image, that he loves them. He sent his son to die for the sins of this world, and we ought to honor him as we even have in our purpose. We ought to honor God by helping people. But we miss the point. If somehow we think that that's the main point of this passage, because the main point of God's mission for God's people is not just help people on a temporal level. The question was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he was bringing this lawyer to the point of seeing his need so that he might know that the only way to inherit eternal life is to, is to put your trust in, reliance on, commitment to, to the one who can only give you eternal life. So, so whenever we help people, and there's all kinds of things we've been helping people throughout this year in tangible, physical ways, and that's all good, but it's all for the purpose of extending the message of who Jesus is and what he can do for his life. Just before this passage, and we've been memorizing, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. If anyone wishes to, to save his life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And then right after that, he, what does a prophet man against the whole world and loses his what? His soul or life. We're not here just to help people temporarily. 
And we do that to show the love of Christ, but we do it for the purpose of authentically and genuinely creating a platform by which we can talk about the giver of life and the one who can, who can shower them with his love and his grace and mercy. And if somehow we miss that, then as some writers will say, we're, we're on mission drift. We've, we've, we've turned ourselves into somehow a, a program that can be, or institution that can be duplicated in so many different ways in the community. We want to come alongside to help people practically and, and definitively, but it's for the purpose of pointing to them the one who can help them eternally. Do you understand that? So sometimes people will come to the church, and I have to be careful about how many stories I'm going to tell now. And they'll come, and we'll help them in certain ways, but they want help in more ways than we feel it's wise to help them in. And, you know, one of the first things they try to put us on is a, on a what kind of trip? A guilt trip. Well, I thought you were the church, and the church ought to be helping people. You ought to help me with this and this and this and this and this. Look at What is the mission of the church? is to bring people to the foot of Jesus. And let me just tell you, it's, it's not only just the mission of the institution of the church, it's the mission for every Christ follower. That's our mission. Now, we have different assignments. If, if, you're, a, if you're a lawyer, do it in the, in the law field. If you're a construction uh, person, then do with it there. If, if you're a, uh, you know, wherever you live as a neighbor, for whoever you do life with, your, your relational world, that, Involve your life in people and, and do things with them and for them, but always in the back of your heart and mind, I want to point them to who? To Jesus. And, and that's why he told that story, to, to really get him at the, his point of need. You, you, you'll never, this, to this Lord, you'll, you'll never see your dependence upon me until you see you can't measure up to the law that you put so much confidence in. The law was given for the purpose to show you can't do it. None of us can be the Samaritan that's in this story all the time. That's why we need Jesus. Now, if you're like me, that kind of raises the, credit, uh, the, the question, that, well, okay, well, so what am I supposed to do as far as living it out and helping people? Let me, let me throw out some things I've wrestled with, and you, you can take this however you want, but as I am constantly bombarded with people asking for help, whether it's coming by the church office or whether it's out in the community and as I'm involved in people's lives, how do I wrestle? What do I do? And let's be honest, what I will not do or do not do. Here's some things to wrestle with. And all I'm going to do is put it on tension level for you because these aren't things that are easy to apply all the time. But number one, consider helping God's people God's way. Or consider helping people God's way. Number one, do not enable someone's immoral lifestyle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, and actually this is directly spoken to people within the church, but it says this, but actually I wrote to you, this is Paul to the church of Corinth, not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or drunkard, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. We, we, even, even our communities have begun to realize that you can hurt people by helping in ways that don't really help them. If you're enabling them to continue on to live the way they are, you're part of the problem rather than part of the what? Solution. 
And even with God's family, if someone is going off the wrong path, you don't do things to somehow enable that person to continue to do those things by providing them ways that, that are helping them, you know, fall off a path that's far, far from God. So you know, where you draw the line with that, how you navigate that, but you say, I'm going to love people. And there's a tender side of God's love, but there's also a what? A tough side of God's love. love. And so don't enable a person to, to continue living in a moral lifestyle. Secondly, do not enable someone's irresponsible lifestyle. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And actually, in your Bible studies this week, that chapter is one to read through the entire context of it. But the Kind of the, the, the bullet point is found in verse 10. For even when we were with you, you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him what? Eat. Now, are we always going to be able to discern whether a person is not working because they can't work or they will not work? It's... That's not an easy call, is it? Uh, but I think that's why I describe it as an irresponsible lifestyle. There are times when people are asking for help, and the reason they're asking for help is they don't want to do the things they can do. And when we somehow keep giving handouts to people or allow them to do some things that are responsible, then we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. And they're tough calls at times. We, we've had people in our own uh, facility at times. We've allowed them to stay in our facility for extended periods of time. And other times we said, no, you can't stay here. But the most recent one is we had a young man. And let me tell you, he had a fantastic story. But the more we checked it out, that he, had, he was taking drugs and dispensing drugs. And we have people on the, on the, on the campus that could be impacted by that. And we had to call the police out and... There was even a longer story behind that. And we could have continued to do some things to help them, but at this point, we were being enablers and not helpers. So part of the question that comes in our mind, is this an immoral lifestyle that I'm somehow supporting? Is it an irresponsible lifestyle that somehow I'm supporting? And when we do that, we're not loving, we're actually hurting. The other reality, and we have to wrestle this, and there were a number of men at the men's a breakfast that I was at the table with, is you need to realize this. You cannot help everyone. You know, Jesus even said in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, For the poor you always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do them good, but you do not always have me. Now, each one of these texts we could spend a Sunday on, but we need to realize that there, there are unlimited problems out in the world and, and issues that you're not going to be able to address on an individual basis or a corporate basis. There are a number of direct ministries we have at our church to help people in specific areas, whether it be learning English as a second language, whether it's clothing people, whether it's giving food for when they come in for an emergency need that way, whether it's the year-long ministry to Samaritan's Purse, all those different things which meeting physical needs around the community. And there's other things we do as well. But I could list you all kinds of things that I'm burdened about, that, but we at this point have not been led as a church to go down that path, whether it's dealing with sex trafficking, dealing with unwed 
parenting, dealing with the abortion issue, all the other drug issues. There's all kinds of things that you, not all of us can be involved either as a group, as believers together, or as individuals. And all we, we have to struggle, well, where am I going to be a, a place of, of light in a person's world? But I cannot do that for everyone, but do for the per- persons that God wants you to deal with and, and, and deal with the issues, the struggle of not being helped to everyone. Fourthly, and this is a passage you can meditate on and wrestle with, do help those in real need that God places on your heart. And John, at the end of his section on that, he's you know, basically, throughout John, he said, don't just simply love in word or tongue, but indeed in truth, and then he goes on and gives some specific examples. But at the end there, he says, look it, as you wrestle with this, do what you can do, and if God condemns you in your heart, then you realize that's a, that, that's a red flag saying, hey, you need to move. But what we ought to resist is, is, is being the Holy Spirit in everybody else's life. You ought to do this. You ought to do this. And sometimes that's what people want to do. They say, well, this is what the church ought to do. Well, we are the church. Okay? Institutionally, we're not supposed to do everything. We have a main mission, and that mission is point people to the Jesus who told this story, not to talk about doing good works in a world that needs good works. God calls us to do that. But to point out a person's need for salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Realize you can't do anything that will measure up to God's standard of perfection. And your sin brought Jesus to the cross. God doesn't even want to look at evil. And even the good things that we do are evil in God's eyes. And anyone who comes into relation with God comes to that point where they desperately see their need for a Savior and fall on their face, literally or symbolically, in dependence upon Him. What's the point this morning? The point, I believe, is not so much, uh, are you going to be a good Samaritan this week? And we ought to be good Samaritans this week. We ought to look for people that we can reach out and, and touch and care for. And look, we've all done certain things. I mean, I'm out of time already. But, you know, we, we, you know I could give you illustrations of all kinds of things that, that Alice and I as a family have decided to do and have done, individuals that we have ministered to. But no matter how much we do, you can't, you can't meet everybody's need. But what I can do in the midst of everything that we're about is that we want to point people to Jesus. I remember there was a paralytic that came up to Peter, James, John. They said, you know, he, he was asking, asking for money. He said, you know, silver and gold do we not, but such as we have we'll give you. And that was Jesus. And that's what God wants us to do because there is nothing more important than giving Jesus to people. And of course, for us to give Jesus, we have to have him. And if somehow in your life you look at you, somehow you're counting like that lawyer is, well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a lot better than a lot of people I know. Or, I, you know, I've, I've been baptized or I've been circumcised or I'm a member of this church or I've read the Bible backwards and forwards. But if you haven't come to that place in your life where you desperately surrendered your life to Jesus because you needed his mercy and his forgiveness then you've missed it. By the works of the law, by the works of anyone, no one will be declared righteous in God's eyes. 
But those through faith, dependence, reliance, trust on him and his finished work on the cross, those are the ones who have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in the midst of all that we've talked about this morning that's been helpful. And if there's anything I've said that's not from your heart or from your word, I, I pray you might just take it from all of our lives and, and minds. But Father, the heart that is so obvious, might we realize there is no more important question than it's what must I do to inherit eternal life? And might we all realize it's not what we have done, but what you have done. And might we all put our total confidence and trust and faith in Jesus. And we can do that right now by simply telling you, Lord, I need you. I need you to forgive me for all that I've done that falls short. I want what you can give, and I receive it now. And might that be the heart for us as we care about people in our family, in our neighborhoods, in our co-workers and the people we know, might we desire more than anything else that they meet Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.